The Daily Rios Digest, March 6, 2022. Mailbag Monday. Taking a look at yet another DCBS shipment, these books ship mostly in, I guess, the end of January and then the beginning of February, and it is very DC heavy. Not a lot to talk about here. Uh, We start with Aquaman Green Arrow Deep Target number four. I am not collecting this series, but I did get this particular issue for the alternate cover by Kyle Nagu, which features Aquaman in his, well, I'm going to say it, in his classic camouflage costume as he's rising out of the water, holding his trident, the sun is behind him, and there he is with his, you know, shorter blonde hair and and that just, just that fantastic camouflage costume from the 80s, which I love, uh, so... Yeah, I'm, I can't say that I don't ever buy variant covers for the image, uh, because I do every now and then. This one, clearly, the minute, the second I saw it, I went, yep, I, I'm getting that. Uh, so I have that. I also noticed, and I don't know if this is the first batch of books that I noticed this on, or if this was something that has been going on and I'm just not observant. DC is now crediting uh, cover artists, and not just the artists, but the colorists as well, in a very tiny little uh, black box along the UPC symbol. So you can actually see, you know, vari- or cover by Kyle Nagu, or as I was looking at other comics for um, in this shipment, uh, they would have the the artist and the colorist or anybody who worked on the cover, the cover image. Uh, So they're now starting to do that right on the cover, which is kind of great. For a while there, they were just doing it in the credit box inside the book, and they were listing cover artists and variant cover artists. Uh, I think in the 2000s, they would do cover credits uh, in the back, like in that I don't know what it was called, like the DC Multiverse page or DC Direct page, and they would have, you know, this issue's cover by blah, blah, blah. Um, So now they're just smacking it right on the front, so that's kind of cool. All right, I also got Justice League Annual 2022. This story by Bendis and uh, Sanford Green has Wonder Woman returning to the Justice League. It also features an appearance by OMAC, And, you know, it's one of my favorite characters, so I had to get this issue. But then I was wondering, wait a minute, does this fit into Omak's appearance in Legion of Superheroes Millennium? Which was also written by Bendis. And as I was flipping through it, I I don't know if I saw any connections, but I haven't read it yet. This also features uh, an old Justice League villain, Lord of Time. There is uh, a small tease about the Gold Lantern, which is everything that's going on in the Justice League Legion of Superhero miniseries at this point. And uh, one thing I did notice as I was flipping through, this issue was broken up into chapters like an old Silver Age or Bronze Age Justice League of America story. And each chapter features, you know, just a few members of the League. So that's kind of cool. Nightwing 89 is part one of a crossover with Superman, Son of Kal-El, that will be continued in Superman, issue number nine. Uh, Teen Titans Academy 11 on the cover, it says that they are finally revealing who is behind the mask of Red X. Uh, And then I also got uh, Saga 55, which is the restart of that series. And, And then also from Image... This is definitely something I was looking forward to. The official image timeline compiled by Jim Valentino, apparently from personal resources that he kept over the many, many years. 
and articles and such. Um, this is a year-by-year -year bullet point breakdown of Image Comics. And not only just books that were released, but a lot of the stuff that went on prior to Image's Image prior to Image being founded. There is a whole section on awards, pictures of ash cans, company crossover, uh, covers, um, toys, etc. It's very image oriented, which it's very picture oriented. There's just a lot of pictures. And um, even in the timeline, it feels like there's more pictures about the covers or what the timeline is talking about than actual timeline verbiage. And I guess that's okay. So, uh, yeah, as I said, it goes all the way back to 1990, 91. You hit February 1st, 1992, which apparently is their real official uh, first anniversary or, or the first date celebrating image uh, because of a meeting that they had. And then Youngblood number 1 gets released in April of 1992. And then, like I said, it's just a history of their 30 years with a lot of titles that I was like, oh, yeah, there's that, you know, like Leave It to Chance and Telus and A Touch of Silver and Noble Causes, Guerrilla Comics, Casanova, which was a series I loved, Proof, and uh, just really just so, so many more. So this is going to be good to have because it's another resource book and I can use this to you know compare to other resources that i have about image or online articles or online history things um i love reference material so this way i can use this as a, just another reference so there you go just a few things for uh the latest dcbs shipment Road to Danger Street Part 2, taking a look at First Issue Special, Issue Number 2, Introducing the Green Team Boy Millionaires. So this segment is all about taking a look at the 70s DC Comics series known as First Issue Special in anticipation of the upcoming Danger Street Maxi Series from DC Comics, written by Tom King, art by Jorge Fornes, which is putting all of these characters from First Issue Special together in one big, large mystery. And I'm going through these issues for the first time, except for one of them. I have read the Manhunter issue before. And what I'm doing is, I don't know, it's kind of like an experiment. I'm, I'm trying to guess and anticipate how these characters how these very individual characters might be used in the maxi-series in an ensemble way. So I'm reading each issue, and I'm providing a little bit of uh, explanation about what's happening in each issue, and then I will talk about maybe my thoughts on how these characters could be used within Danger Street. So this is Green Team, The Boy Millionaires, issue, uh, first issue special number two. By Joe Simon and Jerry Grandinetti. Joe Simon, of course, the co-creator of Captain America. Other characters such as Sandman, Brother Power the Geek. And these last two, Boy Commandos and the Newsboy Legion. And, you know, that feels right, right? If you create a group like the Boy Commandos and then you create a group like the Newsboy Legion, of course, he's going to go on and try to create this other youth group uh, green known as the Green Team, Boy Millionaires. And then Jerry Grandinetti is best known for his work with Will Eisner on The Spirit and for his decade and a half run on many war titles for DC Comics. And then these two creators also created Prez. So who are the green team? Right there on the cover it says, Some millionaires sit in the sun waiting for something to happen, but not the green team. We offer a million dollars for each adventure, and we always get our money's worth. And then there's a couple 
other descriptions throughout the story, such as uh, inventors, adventurers, explorers, boy millionaires seek action, will finance interesting projects, contact the green team at the Millionaires Club. Or they might say, we pay for play, money for thrills, we will finance uh, adventures, contact the Green Team Millionaires Club. Just like in issue one with Atlas, where Atlas was always being described, you know, Atlas the Relentless or Atlas the Strong or whatever words were used, um, there are billboards and posters throughout this issue that also introduce this character, uh, or this, this team, I should say. And I don't know if that's something that's going to stay consistent throughout First Issue Special, but I like that notion that be because these issues were written to be almost like a pilot for a series, they want to constantly reinforce what each of these characters are. So, so I kind of dig that. So the green team, Boy Millionaires, uh, financing projects, makes me think right away, this is, they're, they're kind of like an early version of Shark Tank in a way. And we meet all of the three boy millionaires in the story. And then we also meet uh, Abdul Smith, who is a black shoeshine boy who wants to be a member of the, the team. You got to remember this was the 70s, right? Um, and then he does manage to become a member when uh, his bank... Uh, issues an error in his account, and then he takes that money and invests it on Wall Street and winds up becoming a millionaire and then pays back the bank. Ah, if only it was that easy. And then from there, uh, since he joins the team, the group decides that they're going to finance uh, a project called Great American Pleasure Machine, and the inventor describes it like this. Television is dull, Movies are on their way out. Broadway is dark. In my pleasure dome, a person will come for weeks at a time and take a timeless journey through the thrills of the universe stored in my computer banks. He will experience happiness never before known to man. Now, when I talked about Atlas in issue one, the text page also discussed things about electronic media and creating instant classics. So here again another look at uh, mass media in a small way. Now, before they decide to, well, while they are building this new investment, all of a sudden, all these protests erupt. And it's because they feel like if they create this pleasure dome, the things that that inventor was, was talking about, television, movies, Broadway, it may all just disappear. Right? There's even a line that says, your movies, your theaters, even your comic books will, all, will be all out of work. So I thought that was a, a fun, a nice fun meta co uh, commentary there. So the team, of course, they have to protect their investment, but uh, they come across the leader of the protesters uh, by the name of um, David D. Merritt. And he's a Broadway producer, which made me think, okay, that must be a spin on a very popular, a very lucrative, a very infamous Broadway producer named David Merrick, because the names are just too close. So they come across this producer, and the producer doesn't want them to build this dome, so he decides to go into the dome and experience the pleasures for himself only to come out of it on the other side driven insane by all the happiness. So the, the boy millionaires are like, oh great, you know, phew, I'm glad we didn't actually go in there and have this happen to us. And then it just ends with them wanting to destroy the device. Very odd. So who are the green team? They are made up of the Commodore, who is a shipping tycoon, Commodore Murphy, and he has inherited the world's biggest fleet of oil tankers. And I wrote in my notes here, good, go solve our gas price issues. Uh, and then we meet J.P. Houston, who is an oil magnate, magnate. And then there is Cecil Sunbeam of Sunbeam Studios called The Star Maker. Love that name. And uh, he, let's see. J.P. Houston uh, has a whole bunch of oil fields, 
and Cecil Sunbeam, the star maker, is a, a, a big-time director-producer on a whole bunch of movies that feature the now generation of the 70s. And we get to see him flipping the script on, on a classic Shakespeare play. And uh, I feel like his character is the only one that maybe made himself rich as opposed to inheriting his wealth because they say he built his family's failing studio into a million-dollar success. Now, it could be a failing studio, but maybe they had money. But I, I feel like maybe he's the only one that might that didn't inherit his money like the other two did, but, you know, I can't read too deeply on one issue. Um, but he had a funny line as he was doing his filming and he was filming this rumble scene, and he says, this is too tame. It's old hat like West Side Story. And then he goes in and says, you got to fight like this. So he's clearly a brawler. But I thought that was a funny comment considering, you know, there really, there just recently was a remake of West Side Story. Now to keep it in the world of comic books, they each do have certain things that elevate them into, not superheroes, but into action adventurers. For instance, the Commodore has a toy boat that can fire actual destructive missiles. Uh, J.P. Houston has guns that sh fire bullets that don't kill you, but they just dope you and knock you out for a while. And the, the Star Maker has a megaphone that when he, he uses it, you can hear his voice across the miles. So we were, and then I, as I talked about, we have Abdul Smith, who um, once he joins the team, his his device, if you want to say, is the wardrobe that he carries around, the box of shoeshine stuff. Um, so the story is what it is, right? I, oddly enough, I had no idea by the end of it what side Joe Simon was actually coming down on when they were coming up against all these various issues. So for instance, um, clearly the Pleasure Dome could be a metaphor for instant or for distraction for gratification maybe not instant gratification but definitely gratification and if it's putting out tv and movies and broadway well we don't want that right so we should be on the side of the protesters in fact in the panel where we see the protesters because they mentioned comic books Superman and Batman are in the panel, and so is a version of a Spider-Man. Now, you could easily say, oh, maybe that's just like the L.A., the performers in L.A., or that the, the, the actors that dress up like other famous actors or characters, and they, they go around the, the, I don't know, I don't know my, my geography, the, the Hollywood Square section, and they just try to make money or whatever. Um, but then there's another panel where it's like, clearly that looks like John Wayne. So so it's a commentary, right? It's some kind of commentary of putting Hollywood out of business. But we shouldn't be on the side of that, right? We shouldn't be on the side of these boy, millionaire, boy millionaires wanting to create this device. And then when they are building the machine, it does feel like it's a little bit of a commentary on industrial industrialization on some part. Um... There's a narrative box early on as we're watching Abdul Smith come to the green team office that says, this is a story of a minority group considered by many to be shiftless and non-productive. To better understand these people, let us look in on one of the places they frequent. So at first I was like, oh, are they talking about Abdul? But it's like, oh no, they're talking about the rich, right? But... um. Why would we want to get to know them better if they are shiftless and non-productive? I mean, there's even the scene where Abdul goes to a bank, his bank, and the bank teller is drawn in a way that he looks like a criminal or he looks evil, right? He's taking the money. He's like, ooh, money. Or when they go to Wall Street and the Wall Street investors are drawn, um, not in stereotypical ways, uh, stereotypical ways, but in, in just, they just look evil. Um, because their eyes are kind of like, you know, manic in, in some way. So, yeah, I I really don't know. I was like, I don't know what where I'm supposed to put my, um, where who I'm supposed to back up in any of this. Um, 
Now, they did produce two more issues, issues one and two of the green team, but they didn't release them uh, because of the big uh, DC implosion of the 70s. And what winds up happening is these two issues are collected in uh, the canceled comics cavalcade collection that DC put out, uh, you know, these Xeroxed um, books that had covers and stories that never got printed just so they could copyright it. So I read those two issues, which would have been the series of The Green Team, issues one and two, also by Joe Simon, also by Jerry Grandinetti, inked by uh, Craig Fleasel, or Craig Flessel. And we learn a little bit more about them um, in, in both the first issue special and in this canceled issue we learn that they have these things called action uniforms. And they house different compartments on their uniforms. They're indestructible. They each carry $250,000 on them, adding up to a million, right? Um, they have these really great tele-ticket wristwatches that they can communicate with from afar. And instead of like a, an Apple Watch, instead of texting... It's like a, a Wall Street ticker thing or, you know, or stock market ticker thing where the, the it prints out what they're trying to commu communicate to each other, which I thought was kind of fun. Um, again, that's to, to push the, I don't want to say superhero concept, but to push that feel. So the first issue is just about this Russian fleet of fishing boats that's trying to capture these giant lobsters. There's a, uh, not a food shortage, but there's like a, a an, an imbalance in how much food costs. And the green team is like, oh, you know, if we get all this lobster, we can bring the, we can drive the cost of food down. Again, <laughs> felt like, oh God, this is hitting on commentary of things going on, you know, right now in 2022. Um, they meet a man that actually lives with the lobsters or, or or feeds them, and then the Russians come in and kill this guy, which I thought was a little heavy for this kind of book. Um, and then all of a sudden, by the end, the lobsters turn on the Russian. These giant lobsters just turn on the Russians and they battle, and then the war's over and that's it. I was like, okay. Uh, also in that issue, apparently the green team has... Uh, bases all over the world that they can go to and the one that they go to in this issue is in Puerto Rico and again because they're rich they just happen to have a place in Puerto Rico and that's like a big thing right now and in the past you know probably decade or more about the wealthy going to Puerto Rico to avoid whatever taxation or just to just for whatever purposes nefarious purposes so I was like again I don't think we're supposed to like these guys. Um, issue two has this scene with JP and Abdul uh, going to the slums of the city and hanging out because they want to see how that side lives. And then there's talk about maybe we should develop housing for these people and try to get them out of their situation. And I'm like thinking, okay, gentrification and... Why are they criticizing these people? Why is the narration really criticizing the people um, uh, in this uh, in these slums instead of arguing about whatever it is that put them in the slums? You know what I mean? Like it was like, oh my god, ooh, you know, again, seventies, but still, ouch. So once again, they have to try to they want to finance a project. In fact, they have to finance a project, as we learn in um, at the end of issue one. Because if they don't spend a certain amount of money, they will be taxed, you know, very highly. So it's almost like Brewster's Millions. You got to spend a certain amount of money, uh, you know, in a week. And I was like, hmm, yeah, you know, got to avoid those taxes, right? Because you're wealthy. Um, in the second issue, ooh, they come across a man who wants to... Uh, well, he's called the paper hanger. And yes, he is drawn to resemble Hitler. I was like, oh my God, it's fucking Hitler. <laughs> 
He's not a paper hanger. He is the paper hanger. And what he does is he goes into these houses and he throws up this wallpaper and it looks like it's just blank, but then there are these seeds on the wallpaper and they grow into vegetation and trees and then the people of this slum community they can go in and eat but all of a sudden the trees get out of hand and and he wants to wallpaper the whole country and and turn it into his image or whatever you know he wants to overtake the world and I was like oh my god and then by the end somehow there's some explosion and then we don't see the paper hanger anymore and then that's it and I just was like wow I wow (laughs) it's very weird it's very weird that this whole issue with the paper hanger i was just very uncomfortable as i was reading it so very interesting that they did produce two more issues and had there been no dc implosion maybe these books would have kept going um, there were other appearances of the green team, random appearances in things like, uh, you know, small little panels in Animal Man number 25, Adventures of Superman 549, uh, Ambush Bug Year One. And then there was a reboot of the concept for the New 52 in one of their second waves, maybe, or third wave. There were two books that were kind of like sister books. One was called The Green Team. The other one was called The Movement. And that was in 2013. And it lasted for eight issues. I think last time around, or when I talked about the initial Danger Street announcement, I said that uh, Gail Simone wrote The Green Team. She did not. She wrote The Movement. Um, I was like, oh, right. That's right. I do remember that. So... They And they were, it was a reboot because they had swapped genders and things like that. So how could this concept be used in Danger Street? And I did see uh, Jorge Fornes's uh, designs of the characters. They look a little older. Uh, part of me was thinking how fun would it be if they were still kids or maybe they were adults that just physically couldn't grow up for whatever reason. Um, and maybe they are still millionaires, but, you know, with the, the way the value of money has changed, maybe it doesn't mean that much anymore to them. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen. Part of me wonders if it's kind of like all those home makeover shows over the years that when they go in and, and they look at the actual construction, it's all very shoddy. Like what if all of the projects that they've been doing since the seventies or whenever, uh, all turned out bad and all the inventors wound up poor or whatever. That could be interesting. I don't know, something about reading these issues. I got a white-collar crime kind of vibe to it. I was like, I don't trust these kids and I don't want to I don't want to be involved with them. So not exactly sure how Tom King would use them unless they turned out to be villainous in some way. I mean, something about the Commodore with his little toy boat that can destroy things, I was like, okay, he looks like he could definitely be a villain when he grows up. And then, because I know there's another youth group in First Issue Special called uh, the Dingbats of Danger Street, which is where the Maxi series gets its title, um, I was even wondering, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if the Dingbats and the Green Team were the same people just trying to live on opposite sides of whatever it is they are opposed to with each other. You know, the, the the green team being rich, the dingbats. I don't know what the dingbats are. I haven't read that issue yet, but I assume they're some kind of youth gang, right? That could be interesting if they were two sides of the same coin. And then my other thought as I was reading the first issue special is, is there anybody behind them? Like who really brought them together? Come to read the text page and there was somebody behind the group named P.T. Green which wasn't his real name. And the idea is that he took the idea of gangs in New York and basically appropriated it for the sons and inheritors of the wealthy. So they are, in essence, a rich gang, if you will. And then there's a quote here, instead of zip guns and shivs, 
Their weapon was far more potent and even deadly if need be. Their weapon is money. Think of uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, where Barry Allen says to Bruce Wayne, you know, what's your superpower? And Bruce Wayne turns to him and says, I'm rich. Um, I don't know. I thought that was fun. You know, is PT really dead? Who is PT? Is that something that could play out within the Danger Street series? So interesting concept, wacky concept, dangerous concept. The paper hanger thing is strange. The, the little commentaries, I think, got away from the creators. They probably think they're like, oh, yeah, this is a commentary on this and how people see this. But then you look at it, and you're like, hmm. It's still a little problematic, but, you know, I am talking about a book that is uh, almost 50 years old. So times have changed, yes. Okay, so there you go. That's my look at the first issue special, number two. And I will return uh, next week for another look. In five seconds, I'm going to hell. Original series behind Netflix is Hellbound. Repent! Repent now! Some give in to the prophecy. And others fight it. But our cry for help is finally heard. Flee from your prophesized death. Hellbound. Only on Webtoon. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday for March 2nd, 2022. We start with Dark Horse Hellbound Trade Paperback Volume 1, $17.99 by Sangho and Josiuk. One day, you will receive a message from an unknown sender. The message will only include your name, the fact that you are going to hell, and the time you have left to live. When the time counts down to zero, supernatural beings manifest to condemn you to hell. Amid, uh, amid social chaos and increasing hysteria, the people must find a way to survive this inexplicable terror. Available for, for the first time in English, this is a series on Netflix um, that you can watch as well. So I thought, oh, that could be fun. That could be fun to give a spotlight to. You know, I'm always looking for something new to watch. Uh, we have two from Black Mask Studios. Last Song Trade Paperback by Holly Interlandi and Sally Cantorino. And on inks, we have Natalie Jackson. This is $24.99. This is a unique, heartbreaking story about letting the music in and how it changes you and affects everyone around you for better or worse. Nicky Marshall was saved by rock and roll, or so he likes to think. An, au an awkward upbringing and turmoil following his father's su suicide led Nicky to form a band called Ecstasy with his childhood friend, Dre. The music takes them to Los Angeles, raw and gritty and teeming with personalities. Nicky thinks they're ready for stardom, but no one's ever ready for stardom. That's a clunky uh, little bit of uh, <laughs> copy there. Uh, also, we have Destiny New York Trade Paperback Volume 1, also from Black Mask, Pat Shan, Manuel Prietano, Elisa Ramboli. Collects the five-issue series, $19.99. Logan grew up in a boarding school for children with magical prophecies, but she fulfilled her destiny so young that she's now having a midlife crisis despite being in her 20s. When she falls for the estranged daughter of a mystical crime family, Logan's new love puts the entire school in jeopardy. A grounded story about the magic of young adulthood, star-crossed modern romance, delayed coming of age, and finding your place in a world too busy to notice you. This, you, uh, this youthful and achingly heartfelt ongoing series Feels Like Strangers in Paradise, set in a magical New York City, featuring characters that will stick with you long after finishing this debut volume. From DC Comics, we have Batman Killing Time, one of six, by Tom King and David Marquez. Three villains, one dark knight, and a deadly heist gone wrong. 
Catwoman, the Riddler, and the Penguin join forces to pull off the greatest robbery in the history of Gotham City. And their prize? A mysterious and priceless artifact in the secret possession of Bruce Wayne. But as the events unfold, what fun is a heist without a bloody double cross or two? An epic white-knuckled action-packed tale of a young Batman desperate to recover his most prized possession from a host of violent rogues before the clock strikes the killing time. $4.99, obviously connecting, using characters connecting to the Batman movie. And then take a look at Dark Knights of Steel, The Gathering Storm, which is a collection of the first three issues of that maxi-series, if you can't find the first three issues. $6.99, written by Tom Taylor, art by Yasmin Putri. Um, this is a, a high epic fantasy story set in a DC universe where nothing is what it seems. An entire medieval world will forever will be forever changed when a spaceship crash lands from a doomed planet. Monarchs will die, kingdoms will rise, and what seemed the end of the world for many was only the beginning. And finally, from IDW and Top Shelf, we have Voice of the Fire, the 25th Anniversary Edition, written by Alan Moore. Discover the astonishing first prose novel from Alan Moore, an epic yet intimate portrait of a single English town across the whole span of human history. In a story full of lust, madness, and ecstasy, we meet 12 distinct characters that lived in the same region of central England over the span of 6,000 years. Their narratives are woven together in patterns of recurring events, strange traditions, and uncanny visions. First, a cave boy loses his mother, falls in love, and learns a deadly lesson. He is followed by an extraordinary cast of characters, a murderess who impersonates her victim, a fisherman who believes he has become a different species, a Roman emissary who realizes the bitter truth about the empire, a crippled nun who is healed miraculously by a disturbing apparition, an old crusader whose faith is destroyed by witnessing the ultimate relic, two witches, lovers who burn at the stake. Each interconnected tale traces a path in a journey of discovery of the secrets of the land. Through the image of the fire resonates be- uh, throughout, the image of the fire resonates between the tales, while Moore finds a different voice for each character, though most are inherently duplicitous in some manner, leading to a further commentary on the disparity between myth and reality, and which is more likely to endure over time. Phew! That's a lengthy explanation. <laughs> $14.99 for that 25th anniversary edition. And there you go, your recommendations for the week of March 2nd. My name is Rob Stewart, and I create the science fiction adventure series, Afterburner, Tales of the Cool and the Wicked. Afterburner follows the multiverse-hopping adventures of Chief of Security Renfield Briggs. Ren leads the crew of a hot rod space cruiser called the Hydromatic Ace. The team is in search of exotic technology to reverse engineer and sell to the highest bidder. At the Logistics Council is Arizona Dos Santos. Arizona is a career criminal who has decided to make a change. In the pilot's chair, Professor Henrik Sloans. Henrik is the team inventor and rogue scientist. Muscle for the team is reluctantly provided by India Dupree in her powerful polysonic belt. Afterburner is an episodic anthology. You can pick up any edition and get a great and entertaining story. Whether it is the threat of the two hitmen, Halfton and Coyote Slim, the perils of the goddess Persephone, or an introduction to the peace-loving space mermaids, the Chi Kuri. 
Afterburner is presented in a deluxe magazine format, and the book is available at your local comic shop, at the AfterburnerComics.com website, and of course, downloads are available at Amazon. I'm Rob Stewart, and I specialize in tales of the cool and the wicked. A Thought for Thursday. And we're off! Fingers on buzzers! Are you feeling lucky? Are you ready to play the game? Who's going to be quickest? Who's going to be luckiest? This is not a game! No, it's not a game, sweetheart, and I mean that most sincerely. Why are you doing this? Yes, I'd quite like to know that, too. You set this up. Why? Because it's not a game, Kate! This is a scale model of war! Every war ever fought right there in front of you! Because it's always the same! When you fire that first shot, no matter how right you feel, you have no idea who's going to die. You don't know whose children are going to scream and burn. How many hearts will be broken? How many lives shattered? How much blood will spill until everybody does what they were always going to have to do from the very beginning? Sit down and talk! Listen to me, listen. I just, I just want you to think. Do you know what thinking is? It's just a fancy word for changing your mind. I will not change my mind. Then you will die stupid. Alternatively, you could step away from that box. You could walk right out of that door and you could stand your revolution down. No. I'm not stopping this, Doctor. I started it. I will not stop it. You think they'll let me go after what I've done? You're all the same, you screaming kids. You know that? Look at me. I'm unforgivable. Well, here's the unforeseeable. I forgive you after all you've done. I forgive you. Feedback Friday. It is a new month, March 4th, so we get to look back at the feedback from February starting with an email from Bob Kelly. And Bob writes in, I was intrigued by your comics as an active form of entertainment, lost episode notes, as I completely agree. You went into it a bit, but I am struck by how much thought and action goes into being a comic fan, even a fan like me who has no interest in collecting. You have to keep up on what is coming out, or you are liable to miss a ton of great content. That means keeping up with previews, but not spoiling yourself at the same time. You have to follow storylines, track down lead-up material to an upcoming series, and follow your favorite writers to different series or even publishers. These aren't complaints, mind you, but it does seem to explain why some people describe getting out and getting back in to comics as a form of entertainment. People may fall behind on shows, but they rarely stop watching TV or movies completely. Alas, I am in the getting out of comics at the moment, mostly due to my current anime obsession, but this show keeps me interested, and even just listening to Digest from February 13th, I found myself checking out an issue of Infinite Frontier that I never got around to reading on the DCU app. Thanks for all you do, Bob Kelly. And then I did write back to Bob uh, a quick sort of note where I said, you know, that you're totally right about getting out and getting in and how it's different from TV watching, movie watching. You know, part of me always thinks that being a comics fan is like being into sports in a way, right? We follow writers and creators just as people follow uh, players or we follow characters just as people follow teams, uh, similar to how... Um, certainly in terms of like cosplay, you know, where, where sports fans buy sports jerseys and hats and, and, and anything that has the insignia of their team. Uh, you know, I know my dad would wear an entire Eagles outfit some days. So, um, uh, beyond that though, that's, that's a little bit of a tangent. Uh, yeah, I did. I like what Bob had to say about, you know, comics being an active hobby, um, now, when you're sitting down and the actual physical act 
of putting a comic somewhere and just reading it is not that's not very active but what you're doing mentally and how we collect comics and how we look for new comics as bob mentioned in previews perusing a comics rack flipping through a book to see if it's something that you like. I mean, those are very all very active things. So thanks, Bob. Thanks for that email. Chris Beckett on uh, the Digest for February 6th, talking about the 30th anniversary of Image. And Chris wrote in to say, I've been rereading the Peter David's Hulk run. And Chris, that's a run I really should read too. Uh, and read up to issue 416, but wondered why Dale Keown poised to draw issue 400, stopped at issue 398. Now I know. He was pulled by Marvel. He was killing it on that title. Jan Dersimel, who was a solid artist, filled in, but it was not the same at all. But this did all lead to Gary Frank taking over with 403. And then Chris mentions that next up on his reading is Future Imperfect, which I love. I love that story. Yeah, um... Boy, that Peter David Hulk is just a, a blind spot in my comics reading. You know, when we talk about the great runs of the 70s and 80s, particularly, particularly um, you know, we always, always talk about Burns' Fantastic Four, which I've read all of. Walt Simonson's Thor, which I'm currently reading. Uh, I think I've read about a third of that so far. Frank Miller on Daredevil, which I probably read about half of that. Chris Claremont's long run on the X-Men, which I'm reading now. Paul Levitt's on the Legion, which I've read maybe two-thirds of. I didn't read some of the earlier stuff. But with Hulk, Peter David on Hulk, no. I, I've read four issues, five issues maybe. Not much at all. So that is definitely something I need to correct. And then um, on Twitter, uh, I mentioned this before, I'm doing a daily... Uh, look at celebrating George Perez and, and his career. And one of the things that I posted one day was a page from JLA Avengers number one, where the two teams meet. And I mentioned something about how you can really see how the two universes differ in terms of costumes and how George paid it, paid attention to uh, things like the Justice League floating in the air and the Avengers being grounded on the top of a building. And I casually mentioned power scale differences of the two. And boy, did that kick off some discussion. Uh, you know, people choosing sides who they think would win in a battle, truly win in a battle between the two. And uh, somebody posted a matchup between the two, and mentioned that um, the characters that were used meant that the two teams were evenly matched. And I I was like, okay, no, I'm sorry. They're just not. So on this spread is Superman, Batman, Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern, Wally West, Flash, Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, Plastic Man, and Aquaman. And then on the Avengers, we have Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, Quicksilver, Vision, Scarlet Witch, and Hawkeye. So, first of all, it's eight Justice League members versus seven um, Avengers. The Justice League of America has potentially four speedsters on their team. Flash, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Martian Manhunter. And the, the matchups that this person, who I don't know, I don't know this person on Twitter, they just found the thread, um, put the pairings up like this and, and, <laughs> and then said, you know, that they were evenly matched, but I was like, okay, no. All right. So they said, first of all, the person lists the Avengers characters first, which that right there kind of makes me assume that there's a bias. Um, Thor versus Superman. First of all, Superman won in the JLA Avengers book. So there you go. You got to give it to Superman. Captain America versus Batman. I probably would give that to Captain America. You know, I mean, he is slightly more super superhuman than Batman is because of the soldier serum, a super soldier serum. And even though I think Batman is probably more diverse in uh, the knowledge of fighting styles, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think Captain America is somebody that 
has been shown to, say, for instance, hit a pressure point, you know? Captain America is a brawler with in whatever style of fighting he chooses, you know? But still, yeah, I would give it to Captain America. Iron Man versus Green Lantern? Come on, it's Green Lantern! He has a, a magic ring. He can float up way and he can pro, he can probably outrun Iron Man number one. He can exist in space more so than Iron Man can for longer periods of time. Probably, he can just create a giant can opener and open up Iron Man's suit. And I'm sure somebody would say, well, the Iron Man suit could probably absorb the will of uh, uh, you know the energy of the Green Lanterns, you know, because that's what happened in the Avengers movie with Thor's lightning. And it's like, well, yeah, but lightning is, is a, an established scientific, you know, thing. And the Green Lantern ring is not. So I give it to Green Lantern. Fla uh, Quicksilver versus Flash. Come on, it's always going to be Flash. Vision versus Martian Manhunter. This is an interesting matchup, matchup because they have very similar powers and ways that they use their powers, whether it's having to do with the mind, their density... But again, Martian Manhunter is a speedster. He's Superman level. Um, he's a shapeshifter. And I think he has more control of his telepathic powers. I just, I gave it to Martian Manhunter. Scarlet Witch versus Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman has fought mythological beings, magic witches. It's That to me is no brainer again. And again, she's a speedster. And she has her lasso. Um, and then the person wrote Hawkeye versus Plastic Man. Which I was like, okay, come on. If anybody picks Hawkeye over Plastic Man, you turn in your geek cred card. But then they didn't mention Aquaman because that is the eighth member and there is no eighth member in that image for the Avengers. So that means put Aquaman in any of those battles, like say Wonder Woman and Aquaman versus Scarlet Witch. They're going to win. Martian Manhunter versus uh, Martian Manhunter and Aquaman versus Vision. They're gonna win. Green Lantern and Aquaman versus Iron Man. The Justice Leaguers are gonna win. You put Batman and Aquaman against Captain America. I think they're gonna win. You know, so in in no way do do I think the uh, that the two teams are evenly matched. JLA all the way, baby. Okay. <laughs> this will be the thing most people comment on, I'm sure. All right, send me an email, peter at thedailyrios.com, or leave a comment on the website, thedailyrios.com. Follow my Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Follow the Daily Rios Instagram. This has been the Daily Rios episode 550, the 35th Digest, for Sunday, March 6th, 2022. Talk to you soon. Go home, dear. You look awful. And you look beautiful. Well, thank you. I don't like to leave you here. Oh, but I'm safe here. Can I do anything for you? You do too much. College, a job, all this time with me. You're not Superman, you know. <laughs>